Father, thank you uh, for your goodness to us. Uh, even as we've just identified so many aspects of the Advent here, just with this wreath uh, this morning, with the lighting of these candles, your announcement uh, of the coming Messiah through prophecy, which we'll look at a little bit today. Um, the place in which you came, a humble out-of-the-way place, and yet the city of David, which indicated his right to rule and reign. Uh, God, that the message uh, went out to shepherds and to angels. Uh, God, angels, these beings that if we saw, we would be tempted to worship, and yet they are in awe of you. And so, in the lighting of each of these candles and the remembering of the elements of the Advent story, we're remembered of the great thing, the great central piece that you are a great God that has made a great plan to save your not-so-great people. So we say thank you for that. And God, I pray now that as we look into your word, as we study, that um, you would give us attention, you would give us clarity of mind and thought, and God, that our hearts would listen to what your Holy Spirit would uh, speak to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, for some of you, you're creatures of habit like me, and at this point you open up your bulletin and you go fishing for your handout. And you start thinking, oh no, my bulletin didn't have one. Uh, maybe some of you have been wandering up and down looking for one. So there isn't one this morning, so we set your mind at ease. And some of you, I know, will sit there twitching, twitching wondering what to doodle on, but uh, you'll be okay. Um, there's no handout. Uh, this morning, we're just looking at one verse, one simple verse, and uh, a verse with profound meaning and impact, and we're going to take some time on that this morning. Uh, the title of the message this morning uh, is this, Who Wants a Ruler? Who Wants a Ruler? I read a very disturbing uh, news article this past week, and probably many of you saw it as well, uh, Kim Jong-un the supreme leader of North Korea. And it seems like almost every story that comes out of there these days is disturbing. This past week had his own uncle, who was the number two man in power in the region, executed. And the reason that he gave was essentially for disrespecting him. Uh, and he was accused of treason. But allegedly the, the reason or, or what was behind that was the fact that his uncle, Jang Song, did not applaud loudly enough when Kim Jong-un was elected vice president of the country's Central Military Commission, and therefore he was executed. Uh, he was not only a relative, but actually he was the, uh, he was the one that had helped Kim Jong-un consolidate power after his father, his predecessor, had died. And he himself was uh, not one who, who would be looked over and this man's uh, horrible rule. This is a picture of Kim Jong-un. Here he is. Looks like a cheerful fellow. Or not. Um, there's another story. Uh, this is a much older one. Uh, another example of a disappointing ruler uh, is this man. Uh, you might know him. Uh, he is known as Haile Selassie. And he was at one time the uh, emperor of Ethiopia. And back in the 70s, a story ran about this particular uh, man where a, a British journalist kind of broke this story exposing the extreme contrast of poverty and starvation among the nation in contrast to the royal feasts 
uh, by Haile Selassie and many of the ruling family and the officials and the rulers in the region. And, of course, it outraged um, the international world who responded and brought aid uh, to Ethiopia. And the finance minister who was in power at the time uh, saw an opportunity. And when the aid came into the country, the international aid, he imposed a substantial customs duty upon it uh, so that nations would have to pay to help. And, uh, of course, the outraged nations asked questions about this, and the response came back uh, in a reply that sounded like this. Do you want to help in such a way that the empire would gain nothing? Yes, (laughs) is the answer. Uh, Stories like these, and and I think many others uh, like them, um, cause us to question leaders and power and authority and rule and reign. And understandably so, and we can become suspicious of leaders and distrustful of them, uh, and maybe even fearful. So when the scriptures promise a Messiah, God's anointed one, one who will sit on the throne of David, who will rule with power uh, over his kingdom, and one who will rule forever, I think it's fairly reasonable to ask the question, do we really want that? It doesn't sound very democratic, does it? Where are the checks and balances? Do we really want God's Messiah to rule? Will he be trustworthy? Will we like him? Will we like being ruled? And if so, what assurances do we have of those things? Uh, This morning, we're going to just look at one verse, as I've already said. It's always a little dangerous to look at just one verse, but we'll spend some time putting it in context so that we approach it correctly. But this one verse deals with these questions. And so if you turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, we're going to look at a familiar passage for many of us, especially around Christmas time, Isaiah 9, 6. And it says this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And here we find in this particular prophecy given through Isaiah, we have this promise of a Messiah who will come, a future king who will not fail who will not fail. And what we're going to do is look at these titles that are given here. We're going to spend some time looking at each one so that we might better understand what his rule and his reign will be like, what they will be like. Let's do a little bit of background work uh, for this book so that we understand what this, where this comes out of and what, what the context is. Um, the people of God, Israel, remember, at this point in time, have been divided into the northern kingdom, Israel, the southern kingdom, Judah, uh, and this happened in 930 B.C. under the rule of King Rehoboam, who was the son of King Solomon. So we have a divided kingdom here. The southern kingdom uh, includes Jerusalem, and this was the primary recipient of Isaiah's message and his ministry, largely, his his prophetic ministry to the nation. Uh, Overall, it's a low time for both northern kingdom and southern kingdom, Uh, It's a low time because the Assyrians are in power and they're gaining in power and they're advancing. 
So there is conflict and the threat of conquest all around them. And so many people are uneasy. And so the kings of Aram and Israel went to King Ahaz. King Ahaz was the king of Judah, the southern region at this time. And they tried to secure an alliance. Uh, They tried to put all of them together so that they could resist the threat, the growing threat of the Assyrians. Uh, And this is what was going on here. And King Ahaz, instead of joining with his northern countrymen or his northern neighbors, decided instead to form an alliance himself with Assyria. And you can imagine that went over really poorly. Uh, This was an indicator of several things. Number one, that he did not trust Yahweh. And number two, it was tantamount to idolatry because he trusted in the powers of idolatrous uh, nations. And so this is the climate. This is the context in which Isaiah's message is being delivered. Um, Overall, uh, Assyria would initially help help out Judah. uh, But over the years, eventually, they would even attack Judah. And down the line, in 586, Jerusalem and Judah would fall and they would be exiled, uh, not ultimately to Assyria, but to Babylon. That alliance had ultimately weakened them. And so Isaiah, kind of like a prosecuting attorney, basically lays out his charges uh, against Judah and against what's happening here. And he is, he is condemning and judging her disobedience and her heart that is strayed from the Lord. And he is calling her back. Uh, to Yahweh. And so that's some of what's going on. So overall, it's a low time for Judah. It's a time of decline. It's a time of discouragement. It's a time of impending defeat. It's a time where the writing is on the wall and they know they're not on the winning side. It's a time of despair. In the midst of all of this discouragement, Isaiah not only condemns the, the present actions, but he also delivers a message of hope. He delivers a message of comfort and consolation in the midst of all of that. And so in, in the stark contrast of the failure of King Ahaz, instead of him aligning himself with Yahweh and with God's people where he went and aligned himself with Assyria, in spite of that and that failure and that shortcoming, Isaiah prophesies about a future hope and a future king who would not fail. And that's the context behind the message. For to us, a child is born. To us, the son is given and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. And we know him as Jesus. And that's the background here. And so this morning, I just want to spend a few moments looking at Isaiah's hopeful message, in particular, these titles that are ascribed to the coming Messiah so that we would understand the goodness of God's Messiah. Uh, let's just take a look at uh, them very quickly here. First of all, I want to make one observation. In each of these titles, you can see, as with our first one, Wonderful Counselor, there's two parts, there's two elements that comprise it. One is sort of an office or a function of, of, of permanence, in this case, counselor. And then it's combined with or modified by a description, in this case, uh, wonderful. And, and that's consistent all the way through. And the first one, Wonderful Counselor, uh, is each one of them is such a rich term, which is why we're taking time with it. But what comes to mind for you when you think of a counselor? Uh, Maybe you, those of you in high school, you think of your guidance counselor. You go and talk to them at school when you're tired of being in class and 
You want to get out under some legitimate cause? You guys don't do that? I did. Uh, maybe you think of a therapist or someone that's helping you work through some, uh, some issues in your life. Or a personal life coach. Maybe a consultant for your business. A personal friend or uh, a brother or sister in Christ who advises you when things get difficult. Counselor here means one who plans. It means one who plans. And, and this, this basically, this term, this wonderful counselor conveys his wisdom to rule. Messiah's wisdom to rule. Uh, as kings and leaders make decisions, of course, they surround themselves. Wise kings surround themselves with wise counselors. So that as they make decisions, they're making well-informed, wise decisions considering all matters. Um, and uh, I want to illustrate that a little bit with King Solomon. Um, King Solomon, we know, was one of the wisest men to ever live. Um, He was a wise decision maker. In fact, uh, it was so well known that the Queen of Sheba, who had heard of his wisdom and heard of uh, uh, all of his brilliance, came to observe him, and in fact, we're told that she came to test it. To see if what she heard was true. You can almost imagine her being annoyed. This is too good to be true. Let's check it out. So she comes and she brings her difficult questions with her. And she tests him one after another. And then finally uh, she replies to him after having been satisfied. And she says this in 1 Kings 10.6. She said to the king. The report I heard in my own country about your achievements and your wisdom is true. But I didn't believe these things until I came and saw with my own eyes. Indeed, not even half was told me. In wisdom and wealth, you have far exceeded the report I heard. How happy your people must be. How happy your officials who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Praise be to the Lord, your God, who has delighted in you and placed you on the throne of Israel. Because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel, he has made you king to to maintain justice and righteousness. And of course we know. I mean of all of the brilliance. And the wisdom that King Solomon had. And that he displayed. We also know that he, he was flawed. Quite flawed. There were limits to his wisdom. Uh, there were places where his wisdom. Had not really crept into his life. Areas that he had sort of left untouched. By it. Particularly uh, his love of women. And that was one of his downfalls. But we're, we're told here, in contrast to kings such as Solomon, as wise as they might be, as good a counselor as they might be, Messiah will have wisdom to rule, and it will be unlimited, without flaw, without fault. He'll be a wonderful counselor. In fact, the title here, Wonderful, that describes his wisdom and describes his counsel is the closest Hebrew word we have to supernatural It lifts his wisdom out of the earthly realm and takes it into the transcendent. And it aligns this individual with deity. He is a wonder of a counselor. With supernatural and transcendent wisdom. More than that of just a man. And so again we see that he reveals the deity of this counselor. The second title we're given here is Mighty God. And this communicates to us. The power of his rule. Wonderful counselor tells us of his wisdom to rule. Mighty God tells us of his power. He has the power to exercise his wise rule. And of course it conveys his deity as well. Just as the first description does. 
And I, I have to, as I think about this particular title here, Mighty God, and the power that it conveys of this coming ruler. If I put myself in, in the sandals of both the northern and southern kingdom here, in the situation that they find themselves in, I would find incredible encouragement and assurance in this particular passage. Because they have just witnessed the impotence of their kings. With the military threat and conquest breathing down their neck, trying to form alliances to protect themselves and keep themselves safe from this, the alliances didn't even get achieved. And the alliances that were achieved ultimately failed. And the the nation fell. Even the divided nation fell. And so here we have the people of God who had rejoiced in the exodus from Egypt and entered into the promised land, now facing exile because of the failure of the lack of wisdom and the lack of power in their leaders. You can imagine the vulnerability and the disappointment and the discouragement that they're feeling, and yet they're assured that one day will come a wonderful counselor, one who is wise to rule, and a mighty God, one who is powerful enough to exercise his wisdom to rule. He will be a wonderful counselor. He will be mighty God. The third description we're given here is everlasting father. Uh, And I think this is the title that many people find sort of confusing here, especially as it relates to Messiah. Because if we're talking about Messiah, we're talking about son of God, right? So how is he both son and father? And here the metaphor gets a little bit mixed and we wonder, you know, what's happening here? Um, Everlasting Father is an expression to describe Messiah's relationship to time and to his people, not to his relationship to the triune God or the other members of the Trinity. Everlasting Father describes the nature of his rule and the length of his rule. I want to go back again to King Solomon, who you remember he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, and we went through Ecclesiastes for a time, one of my favorite books in in the scriptures. And Solomon used this word, oftentimes throughout the book, he used the word hebel. Remember that? Vaporous. It's translated meaningless or emptiness or vanity, but it's probably best understood as vaporous or transitory, fleeting. Uh, Or as Eugene Peterson has translated it, smoke, right? Smoke, smoke, it's all smoke. Looks like something, but just when you reach out to grasp it, it's gone. And... This was the message, really, of, uh, of the book of Ecclesiastes. And he kind of marched through one thing in life after another. And at one point, he talked about the emptiness or the, um, the emptiness of power and achievement and advancement. And he talked about what good is it when you get to the top? What good is it when you consolidate power? What good is it to have a united kingdom and all the wealth and possessions in the world? Because ultimately, it's empty. And he lamented about that. He said this in Ecclesiastes 2.18. I hated all things I had toiled for under the sun. Because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish. Yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil. Into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is And interestingly enough, it was Solomon's own son, Rehoboam, who preceded him, uh, under whose rule the nation was divided. Solomon had it, united kingdom in all its glory, with all the wealth and possession, at the pinnacle of its existence, and Rehoboam, who followed him, took it into division. 
Solomon had planted some of the seeds of disobedience that, that resulted in that division, but Rehoboam was complicit in it when he listened to the childish advice of his childhood friends instead of listening to the wise elders who had counseled uh, his father. And so the kingdom was divided, really legitimizing Solomon's complaint about the vaporous nature of power and possession and achievement. But we're told here in contrast to to that kind of a situation that the rule and the reign of Messiah will be everlasting. It will be forever. He will sit on the throne of David forever. He will not hand it over to some lesser progeny or some crazy kid or some silly son. His rule and his reign will be forever and ever and ever. And we need the hallelujah chorus here right now, don't we? We could do flash mob Bethel style. <laughs> There's no need for a plan of succession or turnover. There's no term limits. There's no heir to the throne. He is the heir to the throne. He maintains it. He maintains it forever. And so this, of course, speaks to the durability of his reign. We have, we have the wisdom of his reign, the power of his reign, and the durability of his reign. And then we're told something here in this description. We're told that it will be fatherly. And we're meant to understand that in all of the good things that a father is supposed to be. And I know that in this room, in any room this side, there are many that have been touched by a father who was less than he ought to have been. And when you hear that word, you maybe even cringe. Um, But a father as he is meant to be, and that's the description of this durable reign that we are given here. It will not be an oppressive, tyrannical, dictatorial, self-serving rule. It will be characterized by fatherly care. As a father cares for his son, so will the Son of God care for us in a fatherly way. Amen? So we have the wisdom of his rule. We have the power of his rule. We have the endurance of his rule. And finally, we're given the result of his rule. He is the prince of peace. This speaks of uh, what results from his, his wise, powerful, everlasting rule, and that is peace. Uh, I used to not really be impressed by the word peace. I don't know how it hits you guys. Uh, I, I think when I heard the word peace, I used to think of it as the obvious answer in any beauty pageant question, you know. Yeah, world peace. Uh, you know, and, and, and I don't think I really valued it much. But, um, you know, the older I get and the, and the more years I go through and the more uh, skirmishes and conflicts and different things that we see, uh, the more I appreciate what this word means and the more peace is a value to me. Um, And, of course, it means more than just the absence of conflict. But peace here, shalom, uh, which is just becoming a favorite word of mine, it means the absence of conflict, but it means the corresponding presence of goodness and wholeness. And that beautiful phrase, things as they ought to be. And let me press that a little further. Not just things as I think they ought to be, or things as you think they ought to be, but things as they really ought to be. That a wise, an all-wise, supernaturally wise ruler who has the power to make them so and will continue to do so forever and ever will be able to achieve. Peace that begets peace that begets peace. In contrast to a world where we have conflict that begets conflict that begets conflict. And I find this um, very satisfying to think about. 
even now, and there are moments, I mean, we celebrate Christmas time, and for our family, this is, this is our favorite time of the year. Um, my wife is in her element enjoying all the festivities and letting her creative gifts just go crazy. Our kids are just that right age that makes everything just really splendid. We've got a winter wonderland outside. It's just good. It's a good time, right? And even as we're celebrating that, I'm still thinking in the back of my mind, there are corners of this world and corners of our own neighborhood and corners of our own church where there isn't peace, right? Where things are not as they ought to be. And so I can celebrate this goodness and this wholeness and things as they ought to be, even as I get glimpses of it in my own life. But in the back of my mind, I have this gnawing that in some places it's not right yet. In some places it's very close to home. But Isaiah tells us that under the reign of Messiah, there will be a pervasive peace, an abounding peace. We will know that in every corner of every room of every place, shalom will exist because of the powerful and wise and enduring reign of Messiah. Emmanuel, God with us. To us, a child is born, a son is given. It speaks to both his humanity, a child, and a son given, his deity, the incarnation, God with us. In fact, chapters 7 through 12 of Isaiah are known as the book of Emmanuel. The title of, that's given here, the Prince of Peace, indicates also that Messiah is the mediator of it and the administer of it. In other words, the peace that we will enjoy is achieved through him. And we know this, of course, because we have seen the child born and the son given who went to the cross and to the grave and who rose again for us, achieving for us peace with the father, a peace that we could not achieve in and of ourselves. And that by placing faith in him, we have our sins forgiven and we are restored to the Father. We have peace with God and therefore peace on earth. The Prince of Peace. These are pretty good titles, aren't they? This is a pretty good ruler. And I think we ought to find incredible assurance from them. And I, would, I want to go just one step further and remind you that these are more than just empty promises. Um, it was a common practice in the ancient world, particularly in Egypt, that when... Uh, at the coronation of the next ruler, uh, they would be given uh, five titles or what they would call throne names. And there are many scholars that think that what we have here is sort of a correspondence to that. Uh, in other words, uh, if if I was coming to power in, in, in some place, uh, I might pick out some names for myself that would indicate uh, my ambitions as a ruler. I might say, uh, king who, I don't know, king who brings peace or, or king who builds or kings, king who... Uh, lays siege, whatever it might be. And these were sort of their ambitions of, uh, of their rule and of their reign. And even our politicians today, they do the same thing, right, when they're running for office. Although they, they seem to be getting less and less ambitions, ambitious. They don't pick five. They usually pick one. It's about three words, like, I like Ike, uh, no more taxes, yes we can. And so we seem to be kind of lowering our ambitions uh, of our leaders overall. Uh, but what we have here in contrast to these, these titles of just aspiration, we find titles that are being fulfilled. And the assurance that we have that these will ultimately be, fulfill, be fulfilled is the assurance that so many of them have already come to be. A child born, a son given, deity, 
the prince of peace, the one who brings peace and will administer it. And he has brought us peace with God through his own death. We're still waiting for some of the others to be fulfilled. We've seen his first arrival and we're still waiting for his perfect rule and reign. But we're assured that we will have it. And the reason I bring this up this morning, I know it's, it's, you know, we just finished the book of Thessalonians and all of a sudden we're in Isaiah. So it's a little bit of a time warp here. But um, the reason I bring this up this morning is as we look around and we see leaders fail and we see tyrants come to power and we see our own governments and other governments disappoint, I think it's important for us as Christians Rather than growing cynical or resentful or bitter or lashing out in foolish comments, instead we should recall the revealed word of God and the message of consolation and comfort and hope that Isaiah brought to a world that felt just like we do. A message of hope for a fallen world. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And then he goes on, listen to this. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. That's something to hope for, yeah? This is a time when we celebrate the arrival of that Messiah. When we look forward to his next coming, when we see his rule and his reign and things as they ought to be. Let's pray. Lord, I'm thankful for this season, and I'm thankful that for so many of us it is a time of peace. It is a time of joy. It's a time of wholeness and goodness. And I am well aware that there are places where that's not the case. God, may we be a people who, because of the peace that we enjoy with God, bring peace as best we can into every corner of the world in which we are. And where it is impossible for us to bring God, may we declare the message of hope and comfort and consolation that one day your son Jesus will rule and reign in power and wisdom. He will endure in his rule and peace will be available. God, give us the message of the gospel too. That we would invite people into relationship with Jesus Christ so that they might know this peace and find a hope and comfort in his return. Thank you for sending your son. Jesus, thank you for giving your life. We look forward to your return. In Jesus' name, amen.